It's my pleasure to introduce to you our next speaker on topical psoriasis. Dr. Linda Stein Gold is the Director of Clinical Research at the Department of Dermatology in Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. She previously served as a Senior Staff Physician, Associate Director of Dermatology at the Henry Ford Health System. She completed her medical degree at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, then an internship in internal medicine at the hospital in Pennsylvania, and followed by her residency at the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. Would you please join me in welcoming to the podium Dr. Steingold? Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here today, and this is really a wonderful meeting. I think I've learned more about vulvar dermatoses in this last hour than I've learned in my entire career. Uh, but anyway, we have two PAs in my department, and they are invaluable, so I really appreciate being here today. And this morning, I'm going to talk, start out by speaking about topical therapy for psoriasis. These are my disclosures that are relevant for this particular talk. And what I do at Henry Ford is I actually run the clinical trials. So we have our hand in, in most of the new drugs that are coming out. In most of the studies, we have an opportunity to conduct those investigations before they, they make it to the FDA and get approval. So it's nice to have a little bit of background on where the drug is coming from. And I can give you some of my personal insights. So today we're going to talk about topical therapy. We're going to talk about how much medicine you need to prescribe because often we're not giving our patients enough. We're going to look also at atrophy and topical steroids and see how much of a problem it really is. We'll talk about the role of vitamin D and talk about why a vitamin D and topical steroid is such a nice marriage. We'll take a look at TAR and then we'll also look at the future of topical therapy for psoriasis. Well, why talk about topical therapy? You know, every day we hear about a new biologic agent for psoriasis. There's so much research going on. There's so many new molecules being developed. But if we take a step back and we look at our psoriasis patients, we realize that the vast majority of our patients, in fact, about 83% of them, have very localized disease, only about 2% body surface area. And I would say 100% of our psoriasis patients need topical therapy. Even that small percentage who have systemic agents or biologic agents or phototherapy still have some resistant lesions that need topical therapy. So I th think we have to keep in mind that topical therapy really is center stage when we're talking about our treatments. So are we giving our patients enough medicine? It's important to keep in mind that one gram of medication covers about 4% body surface area. And body surface area is about the patient's palm. So if we write a prescription for a patient and we want to give them a one-month supply of medication, we have, often will write for a 60-gram tube. But how much does a 60-gram tube cover? It covers about 4%. So if patients just have uh, lesions on their elbows and knees, you give them a 60-gram tube, that's probably fine for the month. But you have to also remember the scalp is about 6% body surface area. Um, the, the face and neck are about 4%. So make sure if we're giving patients a prescription and we want them to treat a good amount of, of surface area, we give them a, the right amount of medicine. And on the other hand, if we give patients a 60-gram tube and when they come back after a month and they haven't had any refills and they have a good amount of disease, they're probably not being that compliant. Well, let's take a look at skin atrophy and how, how relevant is it? Skin atrophy is probably the number one thing we fear when we're talking about topical steroids and, and talking about topical therapy in general. How often does it occur and are we really able to, to tell whether atrophy is there and is there anything that we can actually do about it? 
Well, let's take a look at the package inserts from many different very potent topical steroids and see what their phase three clinical trials actually showed. And when we take a look at one of the most potent topical steroids that we have, which is clobetazole propionate spray, which is actually FDA approved for four weeks, and we take a look at the package insert, we find that there were no cases of atrophy reported in the, in the original phase three trials after four weeks, and 1% was seen after the, in the control group. Taking a look at clobetazole foam after two weeks, in moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, it was seen in 2% of patients and 1% of the vehicle patients. In fluosinonide cream, the 0.1%, which is the super potent topical steroid, no cases reported in the PI. And taking a look at one of the older topical steroids, halobetazole propionate ointment, after two weeks, there were no cases reported for atopic dermatitis or psoriasis, and only one case reported in a, pedi in a pediatric patient, and it was reported as mild. Well, when we take a look at putting a superpotent steroid in the hands of lots of patients, we can come and, and, and utilize one trial that was an open-label trial looking at clobetazole spray in a community-based trial. And here we had almost 2,500 patients who are in this open-label study. They all had psoriasis that was not well controlled. Some of them were using the clobetazole spray as monotherapy. Others were using it as an add-on to a, a regimen that wasn't working well for them. And they had moderate to severe plaque psoriasis anywhere from 3 to 20% body surface area. So what happens when we give all these patients clobetazole spray? Are we going to see a lot of atrophy after four weeks? Well, when we look at the data from the study, we actually see that at baseline, 3.2% of patients had atrophy. And when we look at this trial as to what was reported by the investigators, notice that the incidence of atrophy actually went down. After two weeks, it was 1% and four weeks, 1%. So the investigators weren't seeing any atrophy. In another year-long study, where we looked at the fixed combination of calcipotriene, which is vitamin D, and beta-nemethasone dipropionate, which is a class two topical steroid, and patients had access to this fixed combination for an entire year, did we see any atrophy? Well, when we look at those patients who had the, the fixed combination for the whole year, there are only four cases out of over 200 patients that had any reports of atrophy. And in these patients, they saw atrophy anywhere between weeks 12 and week, uh, week 10 and week 33. Notice that one patient who was only using topical vitamin D actually also had a report of atrophy at week 37. So it seems that we as investigators, when we're looking for atrophy, we don't really seem to find it. But is, is that actually what's going on? In reality, if we look for atrophy, we're gonna find it. And these are some more objective studies that used more objective measurements actually looking specifically for atrophy. And in this study, first looking at epidermal atrophy, 13 women applied clobetazole propionate twice a day for 28 days. And what was found when we actually looked at objective measurements, including biopsies? Well, if you look for it, you're going to see it. And after two weeks, atrophy was there. After four weeks, it was still there. But the good news is when you stop using the medicine, the atrophy starts to reverse. And it took a few weeks, but eventually they got back up to baseline. What about dermal atrophy? That was the epidermis. What about the dermis? Same thing. If you look for it, it's there. And again, at two weeks, definitely some, some atrophy. Four weeks, it was there. But the same good news. When you stop using the medication, it starts to thicken up and go back to normal. And this was confirmed on biopsy. It does appear, however, that not all 
superpotent steroids are the same in terms of their um, atrophy potential. It does appear that the fluosinonide 0.1% cream does have a lesser potential to induce epidermal atrophy than does the clobetazole foam, and that produces less atrophy than the traditional clobetazole cream. And this also was, was proven on biopsy. So what about kids? You know, what about a kid that's got bad disease and we want to use a potent steroid? Is that going to be okay? Well, this was a study that was done in Australia, and they took children who actually had fairly severe atopic dermatitis, and they looked for those patients who had good long-term control on topical steroids. Their easy score couldn't be any higher than a 1.0. And they used a, a um, dermatoscopic technique looking for atrophy. And they, they took these patients, and on average, these patients had been using topical steroids for 10.6 months. And these were little kids. The average age was 3.2. And they had patient 93% were using potent steroids, 77% moderate steroids, and 70% and weak steroids. And what they did was they educated the parents. They said, this is what we want you to do when you're treating your kid. First of all, they gave them a lot of information about just good general skin care and hydration and appropriate use of the bath and moisturizers. They asked these parents to treat the kids aggressively, get the patient under control as quickly as possible with a high potency steroid. Once the steroid was under control, they then asked them to, to lay back to a less potent steroid for an additional three days and then just maintain with topical steroids, I'm sorry, topical moisturizers. And what they found when they looked for evidence of atrophy was there was no statistically significant difference in those patients treated with the topical steroids versus the controls. So what we learned from this is we can use topical steroids, even more potent steroids, when they're used appropriately in kids. Well, what if we're worried about it? Is there something that we can do to prevent the atrophy from occurring? And there have been a few studies that show that some combinations do help to prevent the, the atrophy, the epidermal atrophy. The first study looked at tazeratine gel. Tazeratine, when used alone, actually thickens up the skin epidermis. It, it thickens it up even more than just using a moisturizer or a vehicle. The study also showed that a potent steroid thinned the skin. And when they used the combination of tazeratine with the potent steroid, they were able to reduce the atrophy by about, 43, by about 37%. So the combination does reduce the atrophy. What about vitamin D? Well, there haven't been any combination studies that were used, but we do know that vitamin D alone can thicken up the skin. And vitamin D thickens the skin even more than just vehicle, and topical steroids uh, decrease the thickness of the skin. So theoretically, all this hasn't, although this hasn't been shown in, in actual clinical trials, but theoretically we would think vitamin D should thicken the skin up somewhat. And finally, ammonium lactate. Ammonium lactate, when used alone, does actually increase the epidermal thickness. In this study, they saw that the steroids decreased the thickness, both when uh, using it alone or using it with, um, with occlusion. And they found that the two together significantly reduced the incidence of epidermal atrophy. And again, this was proven on biopsy specimens. Okay, now we're gonna turn a little bit to the art of medicine. When you look at different prescribers and you ask them, how do you treat your patients? If you have a patient that's got a lifelong disease, how do you get them under control? Do you have to treat them until they're better? And then what do you do once they look like they're clear? Do you stop 
or do you have to continue treating? And if you pull a whole group of people and you ask, do you treat until you stop and they're done and then you just stop treating and wait for them to relapse? Or do you use some kind of a maintenance therapy? And with the art of medicine, everybody has their own way of doing it. A lot of people say, you know, I treat until they're controlled and then they're, they have their disease long enough, I give them a drug holiday and let them off the drug. That's not necessarily the best way to do it. And there are a number of studies that actually show that maintenance treatment for a chronic disease like psoriasis is really imperative in order to get the patient under control, but to keep them under control. Because we're not curing them, we're controlling them. So in the first study, these patients used betamethasone dipropionate ointment, BID, for two to three weeks. And the vast majority of these patients, just using the steroid alone, got good control of their disease. And then they, they after the patients had two or three weeks of treatment, they then gave some of them steroids just on weekends, and other had vehicle on weekends. And they found that in those patients who got under control and then had weekend-only therapy, 74% of those patients were able to maintain remission. Only 21% with the vehicle loan three months, uh, three months after the treatment. So it appeared that by just using the, the steroid on weekends, we were able to keep that clearance for longer. Another study looking at clobetazole for two weeks, 62% of these patients were clear at the end of two weeks, and then 75% were able to maintain the efficacy or maintain that clearing by just using treatments twice a week for an additional, two, for an additional four months. This was a study looking at a combination of using ammonium lactate with halobetazole ointment. And the first part of the study used the combination in mild to moderate psoriasis of, that, of the um, amlactrin with the potent steroid. And then after two weeks, they used the, the ammonium lactate during the, weekend, during the weekdays. And on weekends, they, half of them used the steroid only and half of them used vehicle. And they found that if you use the steroid on weekends as maintenance as opposed to vehicle, 53% of them maintained efficacy after 24 weeks, and none of them with the vehicle alone were able to maintain their efficacy. Same thing with atopic dermatitis. Uh, this was a study looking at children and adults, 372 of them. They had moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. They were treated with fluticasone propionate cream twice a day for four weeks, plus good emollients, and then they tapered them down to just twice a week. And they were either given twice a week steroid or twice a week vehicle, and what happened? They found that if you use the, the steroid for twice a week just on long-term maintenance, you were seven to eight times less likely to relapse at 20 weeks. So you'd say, well, well what am I supposed to do? The, the disease looks like it's gone. Am I just treating normal skin then? Yeah, you are. You go ahead and you treat the areas that tend to break out, and you just use that as kind of a more chronic, uh, chronic treatment. The disease lasts potentially a lifetime, and you gotta keep treating it until the body decides that it's done, if that ever happens. Well, what about steroids in pregnancy? Are they safe? Um, this was a population-based study done in the UK, a very, very large study. And the background here is we know that if you give pregnant women one dose of systemic dexamethasone, you're able to decrease fetal mortality significantly. You also decrease intraventricular hemorrhage, neurologic problems, and developmental problems. However, if you give the mother serial doses of systemic steroids, it has a bad effect. We see sepsis, we see decreased fetal weight, um, and just general problems with the fetus. 
Well, what about topical steroids? Do topical steroids have any problems in pregnant women? This was a very large study looking at over 35,000 pregnant women and 48,000 uh, unexposed pregnant women who had never used topical steroids. And they looked at the women had used steroids anywhere from a few months before pregnancy through pregnancy. And they asked the question, does topical steroids have any effect on fetal outcome? <clears throat> and what they found was the answer is yes. Only potent or very potent topical steroids used during pregnancy had any effect, and the only effect it had was on fetal growth restriction. So only on the fetal growth. There was no association, the good news, no association between oral facial cleft uh, palate, between preterm delivery, or fetal death. And this is just a busy slide, but the, the only thing that showed any, any statistical significance was the uh, fetal growth retardation. And they did find that within each 30-gram tube that was um, used, there was an increased risk of about 3%. So in a pregnant patient, keep it in mind. If we can, we will use a lower-potency steroid. Um, just try to use the least amount that you can for the shortest period of time. Now we're gonna switch gears and talk about vitamin D and psoriasis. In the late 70s and 80s, we first got a better understanding of how important vitamin D was for the normal structure and function of the skin. And in 1985, a Japanese dermatologist wrote up about a patient who had severe osteoporosis who was put on systemic vitamin D, and they noticed that her psoriasis cleared up. Well, vitamin D is just really, really important for the skin in general. We hear about vitamin D for everything in, in medicine, but, but especially for the skin. And we know that vitamin D very carefully regulates keratinocyte differentiation. Vitamin D is responsible for basically the schooling of keratinocytes. As the keratinocytes make their journey from the basal layer through the epidermis, all the way up through the stratum corneum, they have to be educated. Every time they advance up, they have a different role in life. And vitamin D is important in turning off and turning on and turning off the genes necessary to make that education appropriate and make sure the, the cells are schooled appropriately. Well, in psoriasis, skin goes crazy. There's all kinds of wild stuff going on. We know that there's abnormal proliferation. The skin is going so fast. These cells are not having a proper education. They're going very quickly. They're skipping all kinds of grades, and they're not schooled appropriately. And when we use vitamin D in psoriasis, what it does is it takes it back, and it turns on and turns off the appropriate genes and helps to reschool those, those cells. So it then inhibits keratinocyte proliferation, it induces the differentiation that we're looking for, reduces inflammation, and it also is pretty safe, mild side effects. This is an example of what a psoriasis patient looks like from a biopsy, where we stain for a marker of differentiation, and that's flagrin. So here we see, we don't see any flagrin. These cells were not schooled. They're not, they haven't reached their appropriate education up to when they get to the granular, get to the granular layer. But when we use a topical vitamin D BID for, for four weeks and rebiopsy, notice we now have a much more normal differentiation. This, the, we have a normal granular layer. It shows that the cells are now being reprogrammed more like normal keratinocytes. Well, a lot of people like to use just topical steroids. Steroids are great. There's, you, know, there's, you can't argue with a topical steroid. There is nothing that will get psoriasis under control faster than a potent topical steroid. 
But when we take a look at what happens with topical steroids, they actually don't affect the normal differentiation. And sometimes skin that might look completely healed might not be. So here we see a bad plaque. We treat it really nicely with clobetazole spray. But sometimes when we do the biopsy and actually look at the, at the structure of the skin, it's not necessarily as normal as we want it to be. So normally we would think if we have more of a combination and get that abnormal differentiation and, and reprogram the cells appropriately, as well as combining that with something that kicks in quickly, we would have a more superior treatment for our psoriasis patients. Another reason why vitamin D works so well with topical steroids is again, topical steroids, they kick in fast, they work really, really well, but they're not necessarily so wonderful for the permeability barrier of the epidermis. And we find that it actually compromises, the topical steroids actually compromise the permeability barrier. And what they do is they inhibit lipid synthesis. So they're actually causing a little bit of a problem for the epidermis as we're using them. But we find, on the other hand, vitamin D actually restores normal epidermal lipid synthesis. So when we use them together, we use, here's a baseline, either using steroid and vehicle or steroid and vitamin D, and look at, at transepidermal water loss, which is a measure of does the skin keep in the water that we want and not let the external in and keep the internal in. When we look at using the combination, we see that the vitamin D with the steroid significantly reduced epidermal water loss and actually helped to improve um, epidermal barrier recovery after tape stripping. So in general, the vitamin D helped to make the, the epidermis more normal. So what about those difficult to treat areas? We, we, we talked about the vulva area, but people come in with psoriasis. What are you gonna do when it's all over their face? Doesn't happen often, but it certainly does happen. What about when it's in the, the skin creases of the groin or under the breasts or in the axilla? We can't necessarily go to a potent topical steroid in those areas because the risk of striae, not just epidermal atrophy, but striae, striae are not reversible, is very significant in this area. Well, think about vitamin D. And one study looked at two different vitamin Ds, calcitriene and calcitriol, which are the two vitamin Ds that we have available, and looked at it in sensitive skin areas. And each patient served as their own control. One side was calcitriene, the other one was calcitriol, and looked at those more delicate skin areas. And they treated 75 patients for up to six weeks, twice a day. What they found was actually the calcitriol was statistically more efficacious in getting these difficult to treat areas under control, better than the calcipatriene, and they also found that the side effect profile was significantly better. I will tell you that vitamin D alone on non-sensitive areas is not a good player by itself. It really is not a fast actor. Vitamin D alone is a very, it's thoughtful, it's slow, it you know, kind of gets into the cells, it reprograms. It's not gonna do anything very quickly. But in these sensitive-to-treat areas, it actually does work very nicely and very quickly. And here's an example. Um, remember, everyone is their own control. And we see that at the end of treatment by week four, the calcitriol was significantly better and much less irritation in these sensitive areas than the calcipatriene. Other thoughts for these sensitive skin areas, and we heard a little bit about this earlier, pomicrolimus, uh, elidil, really works well talking about the face, under the arms, and the groin. And this was a study of pomicrolimus versus vehicle. We see very early, as, as early as uh, three days, it starts to kick in. A nice statistically significant difference by the first week. And that, that improved over the course of, of eight weeks. 
and this is what this patient looked like. You know, this can be a tough area to treat, and it's very itchy and can be very painful for the patients. Tacrolimus has also been used. Tacrolimus tends to sting a little bit more, but I think it can be very efficacious in, in sensitive skin areas. Again, statistically significant by day eight, and that continues to improve over the, uh, the 57 days of the study. And here's this patient in the groin. Still some erythema at day 57. We actually have a new vitamin D that just got FDA approved. It's not quite on the market yet, but we have a, a nice vehicle, and this now comes to us in a foam vehicle. Has been studied on the body and the scalp, but you can imagine that in the scalp, this would be a very nice vehicle to utilize a, uh, a vitamin D product. I will tell you that vitamin D is one of those molecules that really is very vehicle dependent. And we know the vehicle is very important when we're talking about topical steroid, but especially for, for vitamin D. When we look at vitamin D solution versus cream versus ointment, the ointment works pretty well, not necessarily by itself, but it works pretty well. The cream, it's okay. The solution, eh, it works a little bit. So we really need good vehicles when we're talking. We have to get that drug to really penetrate nicely into the skin. Vitamin D is a fickle molecule. It does not play well with others. It is, is inactivated by the, anything that's acidic, and it's also inactivated by light. So if somebody is going to use vitamin D, you don't want to put it on and go out in the sun. You don't want to put it on before phototherapy. It's something to put on more later in the evening or after a light treatment. Not be, you don't want to put it on and then go running outside. So we've talked about vitamin D, we've talked about topical steroids, and the thought process of what if we combine the two together, you know, intellectually it makes great sense. It makes great sense for the pathophysiology of, of why psoriasis happens. Does it make sense for efficacy? And these were, this was an original study that was done by Dr. Lubwall and his colleagues. It's been a while. Um, this was published probably about 15 years ago. And what he did was he said, let's take the combination of a super potent steroid ointment, halobetazole ointment once a day, and combine it with vitamin D ointment, using each one once a day. And then let's compare that to using super potent steroid twice a day, or vitamin D twice a day. And the question was, can we, use by using it once a day, be steroid sparing, because we'd only be using half the amount of potent topical steroid, and can we be get better efficacy? And the bottom line was yes to both. We found that with the super potent steroid once a day and the vitamin D once a day, they saw statistically better efficacy than using a super potent class one steroid twice a day or the vitamin D twice a day. So made sense. You know, here we can, we can minimize the amount of super potent steroid we're using and also get better, better efficacy. That was really the impetus that spurred on the fixed combination product that became available several years ago. Here we had calcipotriene, which is a vitamin D, in a fixed dose combination with beta-methasone dipropionate ointment. Beta-methasone dipropionate is not a class one, it's actually a class two. So it's not a super potent steroid, it gives you a little more room uh, of safety there. And what they found with the, this fixed dose combination was that it was statistically superior to the individual ingredients, to not only the steroid, the vitamin D, or the vehicle, in getting that psoriasis under control. That was an ointment, and the ointment works very, very nicely. The suspension came out for the scalp, and that was the second one that came out, and studies there also showed that the combination was statistically superior to the individual ingredients. 
And you have to know, as you probably do, whenever you're testing a combination product, the FDA is very, very strict. You have to, in most studies, when we're looking at any controlled study, we have active drug versus vehicle. We don't say placebo anymore because it's not a placebo, it's the vehicle. And in any topical study, vehicle does have some effect. So it, we always see the active drug versus the vehicle. But in a combination study, you have to prove that the combination is not only statistically better than the vehicle, but also statistically superior to each of the individual ingredients. And that can be kind of a tough hurdle, especially when you're talking about a potent steroid and potentially a vitamin D. This is a long-term study, and both the combination was, and the ointment and the scalp suspension was studied for an entire year. And one thing that I, I kind of like to point out when we're looking at these studies, first of all, the, uh, the combination kicked in pretty quickly. You see, as early as week four, patients are doing pretty well, and they were fairly stable over the course of the year. Here's the vitamin D. And you might say, well, hey, vitamin D is not that much worse than the combination. You know, that worked pretty well, too. The difference and the key is, take a look right here. What does this mean? What does it mean that after four weeks, it's lower efficacy, and it took about eight weeks till it got to the point where it needed? And we, we said vitamin D eventually will get there, but what does it mean that it took a good two months to get to the, the peak efficacy? What it means is patients aren't gonna hang around. When you look at the dropout rate in the study, with the vitamin D alone, lots of patients dropped out. They're not gonna hang in there with you. So if you give them a vitamin D alone and you send them on their way, they've tried it for a week or so, they're not better, and they've now moved on to one of your colleagues because they're not satisfied with you. So keep in mind when you're looking at data, what's the dropout rate? How many patients were satisfied? Patients were not that satisfied with vitamin D alone as compared with the combination, much lower dropout rate. The uh, suspension has also been studied on the body. It's a more elegant vehicle. It was studied in Europe and found to be statistically superior to one of the vitamin Ds that's available in Europe as well as the vehicle. It's also been studied here in the United States and, and those data are just, just now coming out. Well, say you don't want to use the two drugs together. Say you want to get that patient under control quickly and you want to better mandate what the patient's using. Can you use sequential therapy? You say, my patient doesn't want to do two things. I just want to get them under control as quickly as possible. Well, this was a study, a sequential therapy study, and you'll, I think you're going to hear more about this later on at lunch. But this said, okay, what happens if we want to treat patients and get them under control with a clobetazole spray for four weeks and then switch to maintenance therapy? Can we do that and still maintain efficacy? So this was a two-part study. Initially, patients used the clobetazole spray for four weeks and then switched completely and used just calcitriol ointment for the next eight weeks. Can you maintain efficacy when you take the topical steroid out of the picture completely? And what was found was actually patients did, as you would expect with a, a potent topical spray, very, very nicely at the end of four weeks. 93% of patients were either clear or mild as opposed to having more, much more severe disease. And then when we look, what happens here? There's no more steroid after week four. And at week eight, being one month off steroids completely and just using a vitamin D, 92% still maintained either clear or mild disease. And after 12 weeks, here eight weeks with no steroid at all, still a significant portion of patients had, had control over their disease. <clears throat> and here's an example of baseline, week four. Now here they are, um, eight weeks without any steroid at all, starting to see some traces coming back, but to be steroid-free with just maintenance is pretty nice there. In terms of the scalp, scalp psoriasis is such a fascinating entity. 
And what, what always I think is hilarious is when you look at kind of old-fashioned dermatology textbooks on the treatment of scalp psoriasis, in general, they'll give you a recipe of 12 different things they want you to do. Cleansers, debriding, all kinds of things to do to get that scalp under control. The scalp is one place that people are not going to be compliant. And, and what's interesting is, has anybody done a scalp biopsy? I mean, you've, probably everybody's done a scalp biopsy. You ever do a nice formula or punch biopsy into the scalp? We had to do these. I was doing an alopecia study in men with a hair growth product, and they had to have four big punches at several times during the course. Well, during the course of the time, I'm sweating. I mean, it's just horrible because when you do a good punch biopsy into the scalp, what happens? Crazy blood everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. The scalp is wildly vascular. So it's so vascular that penetration is fantastic. Penetration into the scalp is much better, it's almost like the face, much better than the trunk or the arms or the legs or anywhere else. So why is it that everybody thinks scalp psoriasis is so tough to treat? We can't get it, we can't get it under control, we just can't do it. They don't use it. You give somebody 12 things to do, what are the chances they're gonna even do it one day? Never. You give me 12 things to do, I'm, I'm, I'm on to the next dermatologist. Who has patience for that? And the key is giving somebody a vehicle that's appropriate for the scalp. In clinical trials, when we do a study and, you, and they actually apply the medicine, it gets better, and it gets better fast. So this was a study looking at a clobetazole spray, utilizing that for treatment of the scalp. Again, the clobetazole spray actually has that four-week indication for a topical uh, class one steroid. Most of them have a two-week indication. So it's important to kind of keep in mind, especially other than the, the, the vaginal area, on other areas we usually do try to limit to the, the package insert, either the two weeks or the four weeks. So here they have a four week indication, so they utilize the clobetazole spray for four weeks as compared with a vehicle spray. And these patients had moderate to severe scalp psoriasis. When we're looking at scalp psoriasis studies, you wanna see who came into the study. Were they patients who had just like a little touch or were they patients who had really good, moderate to severe scalp psoriasis? And those are much more difficult to get under control. Here we're looking at a population who did have that more moderate to severe scalp psoriasis. And what we found was when we look at patients uh, <clears throat> who had success at weeks two and weeks four, lots of patients. It was not hard to get these patients under control using a potent spray. And the spray was fairly easy to use. And here, hard to photograph the scalp, but you can see the plaque here pretty much gone by week two and, and still gone by week four. Tazeratine. Does anybody here use tazeratine for psoriasis? Oh, there are people. Okay, good. <laughs> tazeratine is not promoted for psoriasis, but tazeratine was FDA approved. We did the original psoriasis studies. And tazeratine is absolutely FDA approved for the treatment of psoriasis. It's a topical vitamin A. The issue with tazeratine is it's pregnancy category X and I'm gonna talk about it also in my, my next lecture, which is acne. Tazeratine, is it different from the other topical retinoids that makes this an X and the others a C? No, but tazeratine was FDA approved for psoriasis, so the body surface area that you're gonna cover for a psoriasis patient is much greater than an acne patient. So they got the X category because of the potential for systemic absorption is higher than for the others. So here, when we look at tazeratine for psoriasis, one of the big problems with it is local irritation. It can be very, very stinging and burning. Um, so generally what we use, if we want to utilize, utilize tazeratine, it's important to utilize it with a topical steroid. 
And this was a study that looked at combining topical tazeratine with various strength topical steroids. And you can see that you, know, you can get patients really a pretty nice treatment success, especially with combination therapy. And the key was when, you know, patients in studies tend to use it much more than they would in real life. In real life, if they don't like it, they stop using it after one or two times. In studies, you know, we kind of beg them, we plead with them to be compliant. But in this study, when they used it with the placebo, about 3.3% 3, 3 dropped out or 10 patients. When they used it with stronger steroids, less people were more, more likely to drop out of the study. Definitely better tolerated when used with a topical steroid. Okay, let's talk a little bit about TAR. TAR, LCD, you know, we don't talk about TAR, and we don't really use TAR that much. Does anyone use TAR? A few TARs, a few tazeratines, okay. Um, people don't use TAR so much. In Europe, they utilize TAR much, much more, um, and, and anthralin much more. In the United States, we've kind of, TAR has really fallen out of favor. And one of the reasons is it's hard to get one of our professional patients and say, okay, smear on this really ugly black stuff that stains and smells, use that, and then, you know, we'll, we'll continue to, to do that over the course of each day and try to get your psoriasis under control. Again, it might happen once, and then once they open it and smell it and see that it stained everything, it's never going to happen again. But when we look at the history of tar, tar has a very important place in, in dermatology throughout history. And originally, it was combined with light in the Geckerman therapy. And do you know that this Geckerman treatment using tar and UV therapy is actually probably equivalent to any of the biologics? You can get patients, 90% of patients can get under control in about 18 days. And the amazing thing about it is it gives you a great durable response. So when you stop using it two weeks later, are you starting to rebound? No. They found that 90% of patients were clear for up to eight months. So, you know, if you do it and you do the traditional therapies, it does work. There's not a lot of patients that you can't get under control with, with tar and light. The good news is we have some newer formulations that are much easier to use. We have a, a solution and a foam that are much more chemically elegant and easier to use. Just looking at some of the studies, the first one was with the LCD solution. Um, looking at as, a, as compared to calcipatriol cream. As I mentioned, vehicle is important. Anytime you, you look at a study and they want to use a positive control, they always pick calcipatriol cream. Why? Because it has a little bit of efficacy, but it's not that hard to beat calcipatriol cream. Okay, so just remember, that's usually going to be the active control because you always look great compared with vitamin D cream. So here we go. So looking at, uh, but, this, but the tar did work, and it, it was nicely better. When we look at those patients who achieved a PASI 50, 67% with the, uh, the topical tar versus 36% with the calcitriol cream. And those who achieved PASI 75, 41% with the tar and nobody with the, the vitamin D cream. Relapse. How, how long do they keep their remission if they got better? Well, actually, when we look at those patients who relapsed after six weeks, again, with the TAR, much less likely to relapse than with using just the, the vitamin D alone. And this is an example of what patients look like. You know, it's not the most super fast actor. It's not like in three days it's gone. But, but you see over the course of four weeks, a little bit is not that terrible staining of the skin. And then here they are off therapy still with some nice efficacy. TAR and UVB, this was a, a single center study at Jerry Bagel's site where he split the patient in half, gave him a, a liquid TAR, a narrow band on one side, a narrow band alone on the other side. 
And what he found was when you use the combination, you get much faster and better efficacy very, very quickly as compared with just the narrow band alone. Well, is it safe? We know, you know how many ingredients tar has in it? A billion. I mean, nobody knows exactly what's in tar. There's all kinds of stuff in tar, and every tar sample is probably a little bit different. Some of them are, are potentially carcinogenic. Do we have to worry about topical tar causing cancer in our patients? And there was a nice study that was published in 2010 in um, JID, and they looked at a lot of patients. They looked at over 13,000 patients, and these patients had psoriasis and eczema, and on average they had exposure to the tar for at least six months. That was the average, six months. And what they found when they did an analysis was that tar did not increase the risk of skin cancers or non-skin related cancers, so it does appear that it is safe to use. Okay, now we're gonna take a look at the future of topical therapy. And we hear Jack, Jack and stats. You hear that bantered around every once in a while at a meeting, Jack, stat, Jack. What is that? Well, the Jack stat system is a, um, is a pathway that pro-inflammatory cytokines use to take extracellular information and translate it into intracellular activity. And so it's this, this uh, trans, membrane complex right here where the uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine binds and the JAK system then phosphorylates these stats and they go into the nucleus and they create uh, the manufacturing of inflammatory proteins. And what the JAK inhibitors do is they block this pathway and they don't allow the pro-inflammatory cytokines from doing their job and creating all kinds of inflammation and, and um, basically psoriasis. So there is a topical JAK1 and JAK2 inhibitor that is being studied for the treatment of psoriasis. And it especially blocks the uh, Th1 and Th17 cells and uh, basically results in decreasing the um, inflammatory proteins. This was studied in some preliminary trials. The first trial looked at different concentrations of this topical molecule versus vehicle. And the other one used some active controls. What control did they use? Again, calcipotriene cream. But they actually were a little bit, little bit braver here, and they went ahead and they also looked at betamethasone dipropionate, which is a, a stronger topical steroid. So what they found in the initial studies was it looks like the 1.5% cream used BID appears to be the most efficacious in reducing the signs and symptoms of psoriasis. And when they uh, look at it versus active controls, it appears that it's, it's performing close to a, a good steroid. When we look at the clinical trial uh, pictures, these are hard to see. Not the most revolutionary pictures, but it does show that, that you can see that the erythemin scaling and thickness appear to be a little bit better. Does this look like it's gonna be a blockbuster, like, uh, like a really strong clobetazole? Probably not, but we absolutely need new molecules in all areas of, of uh, medicine, but especially in dermatology and especially in topical therapy. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we have a lot of science and, and studies going into developing some of these new molecules. Another new molecule that's being investigator, investigated is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. What this does it, is it also suppresses um, inflammatory signals and also decreases the production of uh, reactive oxygen species. This is a boron-containing uh, 
molecule that's being looked at topically. They did do some preliminary studies in plaque psoriasis and it shows efficacy as compared with vehicle and also looked at it as compared to tacrolimus and betamethasone valerate cream. A lot of, not a lot of data that has been released yet, but we knew, do show, know that it holds some promise, so we'll expect to see some additional studies down the line. So in conclusion, I think uh, topical therapy still is center stage for the treatment of psoriasis. Cutaneous atrophy does occur very commonly if we look for it, but the good news is it does reverse also when we stop using the drug. Vitamin D is an important um, adjunctive treatment for psoriasis, especially when used with topical steroids. It does help to counteract some of the steroid-induced side effects. Tar does have an important place, and we should probably reconsider TAR as we're talking about topical therapy. And I think there's an active future of new molecules for the topical treatment of psoriasis. So at this point, I'm going to go ahead and stop. And if anyone has any questions, be happy to take them. What is your experience with the topical anthralin? And the shampoos. The yeah, topical anthralin. Um, I, I don't use a lot of topical anthralin. Um, I, I, I have in the past. I tend to go a little bit more with a vitamin D. And, you know, you do worry about anthralin staining a little bit. Um, right. You do worry about any of these products. One thing I didn't mention, especially with tar, is blonde or bleached hair. You never want to give somebody something, even in a shampoo or a topical, that could discolor it. Um, some of these products have been tested, at least the TARS, with, with light hair and don't appear to stain. But I, I, it, it does work. Short contact antralin has been used successfully. I think you have to educate the patients a lot on how to use it appropriately in order to get the best efficacy with the minimum amount of side effects. Thank you very much. <laughs>